Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario at the City of Ottawa Archives, a beautiful brand new building, well, about six years old now, with the City of Ottawa archivist, Paul Henry. Paul, welcome to the show. Good morning. We're here to talk about a, a story that has sort of just been resolved in a way. For people who don't know, in 2014, the City of Ottawa, as they are building their LRT, underground tunnel, found some human remains, and they were from the Barrick City Cemetery from the 19th century. And when you find human remains in any sort of construction project, obviously that leads to a lot of discussion, what to do, how do you proceed, and eventually it gets to you in the, the city archive. So we've, we've talked just off before we started recording about some of the process processes that you use here. But I'm curious for you as a historian, as an archivist who's been in the city a long time, you, in 2014, do you remember when you heard that the construction crews had found these remains? And do you remember what your initial thought was, knowing that eventually, I'm sure you would have work to do associated with that? Actually, there there have been three finds. Mm. In fact, uh, there, there was two in 2013, and then final one, 2015. And uh, over that period, as the uh, information came up through, uh, through the media with respect to the find, we knew, and of course we had indirectly as a, as a, as a research uh, site, we had individuals from the various teams who were here doing research, so we knew uh, that this was going to be uh, be a big thing. When you when you find human remains uh, on a site, uh, and my colleagues at the archaeological team who d- did the initial uh, site investigation, one of the first things you have to to make sure is that you're not dealing with a with a criminal. Uh, sure, offense. Yeah. So one of the first things they had was the Ottawa police were in doing their their uh, very capable work uh, and their forensic teams in determining that this wasn't just a mass murder site. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it became uh, obvious uh, at a later point through that process that they were actually dealing with a with an historic uh, uh, a burial. And then uh, the research by the archaeological team that was contracted through uh, through the LRT group, identified as being part of the Bear Kill Cemetery. And if I can go back and give just a brief capsule summary yeah, yeah. Of, of, of Ottawa history, just for your listeners. Bytown, as it was called, um, was, was founded uh, in about 1826. The earliest settlers that we had in this area, uh, mostly on the other side of the river in what is now modern-day Gatineau or modern-day Hull, mm-hmm. came around 1800. And uh, a lot of settlement occurred uh, after the War of 1812, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. after uh, the land was initially surveyed in the 1790s, but most of this area around here was swamp, actually. Right. Uh, (laughs) And uh, that that, uh, plays a a role in the the story as we we begin to look at how people died. But it it gained strategic importance after the War of 1812, and uh, it was decided that the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway that went from uh, Kingston to, to Montreal was too close to the American border, straddled the American border. And so uh, it was thought 
strategically that there should be a, a different avenue to, to get from Kingston to, to Montreal. So they decided to build the, the Rideau Canal, and Lieutenant Colonel John Guy, who was the, uh, the, the Royal Engineer assigned the task, mm -hmm. uh, was essentially the founder of, of Bytown. And he established, uh, so uh, they established in 1826, they began the, the project of building the Rideau Canal. They didn't finish until about 1832 or so. Uh, took a long time, a lot of in effort, a lot of uh, engineering work was done uh, that, that is still in existence today. If you go mm -hmm. to the lock system, a lot of the original lock design, in fact, most of the original lock design is still in daily use mm -hmm. uh, when it's not snowing. <laughs> uh, and uh, Bali established uh, in about 1827 a cemetery just below Barakel. And there were two settlements at the time. One in Lower Town, which is the, the Byward Market area, yep. the area near the Chateau Laurier in the Byward Market area, and then uh, the the Upper Town uh, piece, which was more uh, towards what would now be Center Town. And uh, the cemetery was in the middle, and there was a pathway that sort of wended its way around and through, and to mm -hmm. some degree, through the cemetery. But the cemetery was boarded, bordered, sorry, on the south by um, a swamp mm -hmm. and on the north essentially by uh, by what is now Parliament Hill. Right. It was then ordinance land um, owned and managed by the British Crown mm -hmm. where uh, by had uh, all the barracks giving giving it its name. All the, all the soldiers who were here mm -hmm. uh, were barracked at uh, Barracks Hill. And that's one of those things that's really interesting, just the changing of space, right? Because right now, or where they found the remains, was right under Queen Street. Mm -hmm. So what's on Queen Street? You have the CBC is there. Um, you have a bunch of government buildings, um, some private offices as well. Like, it it's, has nothing resembling a cemetery. And what's interesting to me, in part, about this story is that transformation of space. Yes. That in, in not that much time. Right? It's only 150, 60 years from cemetery to now. Uh, they're building a tunnel for a, a light rail uh, transit system under there. So I'm curious, after these remains are found, they go through the archaeological process, and then after everything is agreed as to what to do and how to proceed, it comes to you and the city archives to help determine who these people were, how they died maybe, and what information we can find about them. So the, f the first question I have about that though is what was the process in doing this research from that land going from cemetery to urban space, given that cemeteries we like to believe are sacrosanct and they're a place where you know, when, when cemeteries market themselves, they say, you're here for eternity, and this is your final resting place. Clearly for these people, that's not true. And clearly that space of the cemetery was changed over time. And, and I'm just curious, to, you know, in researching that process, how, did that ha how does that happen? Well, the, the process of, of, um, that we know today in terms of funerary practices is a, a, a Victorian practice. It's a late, uh, late 19th century. So in the early, uh, the early 19th century, this was not, uh, this was not the case. Mm. As the city expanded, the, the cemetery, it, was, it became necessary to encroach on, on the cemetery for a variety of reasons. The, the land was originally expropriated from Nicholas Sparks, after whom Sparks Street yep. is named. He regained those lands. Uh, they were given back to him in the 1840s. It was at that point that the cemetery was actually moved. 
And you have to think in this early pre-Victorian or early Victorian period that that the the idea of a, a permanent sacrosanct cemetery was something a bit of flux. Hmm. Uh, so so when the remains were found, they were actually sent to the Museum of History mm-hmm. for forensic analysis. So they did an examination of the bones, and they they wanted to know the the the, the, the sex whether they could tell what kind of work uh, the individual uh, uh, did, what their uh, uh, diet was like, and uh, try to see if they could find out uh, how people died, which would be interesting to help them both date uh, the remains, uh, but also to, uh, as, as an archaeological process, to, mm-hmm. to do some, uh, uh, some anthropological and archaeological investigation. Mm-hmm. From our side, there had been some research that's necessary under the Cemeteries Act, it was done uh, by the archaeology group in terms of preparing the site disposition agreement to, to determine exactly what was going to happen. Um, the city at that point, fairly clear that this was a definite civic responsibility to manage these remains that had been found uh, in uh, projects that were under the responsibility of the city, both for LRT as well as for some uh, utility work which had been ongoing as under Queen Street as part of the Queen Street uh, uh, revitalization, and you'll you'll right. note um, which has been happening for forty years. It seems right, like. <laughs> um, and this is, I mean the city building is a, is a is a thing of flux. It's, sure, it's not uh, um, what we see now as modern urban planning is not uh, is not how they mm-hmm. planned cities in the old days. Uh, so, so you can imagine, uh, and in fact, when we looked in the records, and one of my staff went nearly blind looking at uh, old microfilm of the Bytown Gazette for <laughs> for uh, ten years of old microfilm, to see if we could find any evidence that there was uh, a public notification uh, that the cemetery would move. The inhabitants were based on parish registers: Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, uh, and Anglican. Um, which essentially makes them um, British in origin, uh, right. Irish, Irish, Scottish, and uh, and English, which which makes sense in terms of the settlement patterns uh, for the area. There were some Methodists in there towards the end, uh, and what we can surmise is that it was, the move was probably informally done through uh, through the various parishes mm. and, and congregations. That it was not something that was officially managed. And in fact, the cemetery moved twice. There was uh, a cemetery off Rideau Street, um, which is now near where McDonald Gardens mm-hmm. is, McDonald Gardens Park, near the Cummings Bridge on Rideau Street. That's where um, the three cemeteries moved to. And they then later moved uh, in the 1870s to, um, uh, to, to Beechwood and to uh, uh, Notre Dame cemeteries, mm. which had been uh, had been established later on, right. there was another cemetery uh, around Rideau and Scott Street, which was uh, Roman Catholic as well. Which is so we have the old cemetery, the new cemetery, <laughs> and the new new cemetery, yeah. uh, as you can imagine. So yeah. it, it was a constant process as the city evolved, and really, it's that evolution that that dictates where we bury our dead. What we could find from the um, newspaper uh, reports, however, was that in an age before embalming, what they called floating vapors, the smell of the decomposition of the dead, Mm -hmm. essentially was disturbing people living nearby the cemetery. The second problem is that uh, given, um, and you've experienced the lovely wet winters we have here in Ottawa, down to 
you know, minus 50 with a wind chill, you have a very, very deep frost line. And so when you bury bodies in shallow graves during times of epidemics, what happens is the frost actually pushes the bodies to the surface. So right. there were bodies that were unburying themselves at the same time. Um, which was again disturbing. It's a nice treat in the spring when the snow melts. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Uh, so um, <laughs> consequently, uh, uh, there was a, a growing public demand for the move of the, the cemetery, which mm -hmm. which happened in the 1840s. Right. And then, following that, following Nicholas Sparks's reacquisition of uh, his lands, they laid down streets. Hmm. And uh, we have again from the the early uh, records, the primary records, newspaper records and diaries and so on, we yeah. have evidence that there was disturbances. So we have in newspaper uh, records of, of um, children playing with skulls that they found <laughs> as, as late as, as uh, the late, uh, late 19th century, uh, uh, and their bodies being found continuously. And as you can imagine, and I can certainly show you some of our early uh, planning documents that we have here in the archives, you can see... Um, all the sewer records and the, the, the road records. And by uh, in two phases in 1903 and 1907, there were significant revitalization. So all of the, the sewer systems that we you hear in recent years that we've replaced a 100-year-old sewer, mm -hmm. well, right. that puts That's the time period when the sewer was originally laid out uh, yeah. in, in 1903, 1907. Yeah. So you get a real sense uh, that the city was building, that it was modernizing, that it was beginning to industrialize at the same time. Yeah. We didn't have um, uh, running water at that point. We didn't have, uh, certainly didn't have penicillin. We didn't have even modern fire suppression. In fact, the early waterworks that we have were designed as part of fire suppression, not as part of distribution of clean right. water. And we didn't have clean water. We didn't have water <laughs> treatment plants until after the, uh, uh, the 1918 influenza mm. uh, outbreak in 19, well, 1918. Mm -hmm. When you say move cemeteries, though, are you talking about just they're taking the area that was called a cemetery and saying, now this is going to be our cemetery and leaving bodies? Or was it a concentrated effort to take the bodies and the ones that were there that they found then, and maybe across the city, when they're doing other projects, those are ones that were left behind by accidents? Like the idea of moving this, I'm just curious what that maybe, process. Maybe not by accident, um, <laughs> by, by, by neglect. Okay. So uh, the family, members of the congregation or the, the parish would uh, collect the remains of their ancestors and move them to the new cemetery. The, uh, the ones that remain behind, we, we suspect were, were individuals who had no remaining descendants. Okay. So you can imagine two cholera epidemics, one in 1832 and one in 1834, yeah. that they had no one right. to care for them. Right. And so the people who are left then, that makes your job harder, in essence, if there's no lineage then, if, if that's largely the reason they were left, then it's hard for you to go through the files and try and figure out who they are. That's right, and it's an enormous challenge, and this, this part hasn't been done, and it may, it may eventually be done, but, 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 but not now. All of the investigation by uh, our colleagues at, uh, at the Museum of History, the Canadian Museum of History, have um, uh, heavily documented the, uh, each set of remains, and that information has been linked to each of the caskets. So as we re-inter the remains or we rebury the remains, 
uh, each container is numbered. Hmm. So we'll be able to actually link those remains back to the scientific data that may, in, at some future time, when, when DNA analysis becomes easier, uh, or through happenstance. So if you, uh, um, if you uh, submit your DNA to, to Ancestry for... Get a uh, hit, yeah. You might automatically yeah. be linked up with, uh, with these remains at mm. some at some distant period, if ever, <laughs> right. if ever that's something that becomes ubiquitous across sure. the society. Uh, who knows what will what will happen? Mm-hmm. But we've we've taken steps to ensure that all the remains are identified, so that the possibility remains that it can uh, it can be done. So in, in the story, when you're trying to find out why that cemetery was there, why it was moved, does that matter in the larger story of these particular remains in terms of trying to figure out what to do with them? next or you know in in that larger story i'm just wondering how the cemetery itself right how the barrack hill cemetery helps inform the larger contemporary discussion around how to deal with the remains well i think that's something in principle that we we engaged in early on in in the discussion in the process that we we agreed that it what would be more appropriate for the remains to be reinterred, reburied in a manner um, befitting both their faith tradition as well as their their historical method of burial. So mm. uh, the caskets that had been constructed uh, by by the city and they were done internally within the city as well as uh, the the numbered plates were hand punched actually by a member of my staff. Oh. That we did this in accordance, and we actually had someone research 19th century funerary practices to ensure that we were authentic to those original practices so that we, in paying respect to the remains, that we would we would do so in a manner that would be appropriate um, to, to them and, and to their faith traditions. Mm. This is why we didn't, we didn't take the step of just having the remains cremated. Right. Um, we took the step of, of merely moving the remains to where they should go. Mm-hmm. Does that then help us inform the city too? Like, and I mean the physical space of the city? That it, the, It's part of that broad narrative of, of city building, yes. Right. And I think, and, and um, I mean, don't be shocked by this, but there are going to be more remains found. Right, uh, yeah. I mean, if you look uh, at Queen Street today, they've stopped um, the revitalization at Metcalf. Mm. So right. uh, between Elgin Street and Metcalf, that work is yet to be done. Right. So you can you can appreciate that there's a sensibility that we may find more remains in that area. Well, really an expectation then that yes, there absolutely. will be. Yeah, and I know the the haunted walk. They start on Spark Street at Elgin, right at the War Memorial there, and they start by saying this used to be a cemetery. That's yes. how they start. Their uh, their tours, yes, and, uh, and and I assume that's help informed by this whole story. And and what's interesting is I think we really our modern sensibilities uh, we we fail to to truly appreciate uh, how far we've come. 1962 in the building of the Greens Creek uh, treatment facility. Uh, previous to that, that we were dumping raw sewage into right. into the Ottawa River. <laughs> yeah. we, we're not treating. Uh, sewage going into the river, so you can you can imagine 
1962 is 45 or yeah it's not that long uh, ago yeah 50, 50, 50 years, yeah, years ago, ago right yeah. it's not that long it's not that long ago yeah so we've come a long way right it's it's appreciating and and i believe this uh, to be true especially with respect to the 2017 um and the, the sesquicentennial events and so on that while we we take the opportunity to examine who we are uh, and all that that means mm-hmm. and who we would like to be we we are obligated or i believe as an historian that we're obligated to to take a moment to to look back right and see who we once were and i think that that informs as you say who we are and who we perhaps who we should be mm-hmm. um, by virtue of that exploration of who we once were and, and how that um, uh, how that uh, makes us who who we are today and what we've yeah. overcome and what sure. we what we the work that we still have yet to to do mm-hmm. and the use of space is a really important part of that whole story yeah that and the the idea of this is interesting in just listening to you talk about Parliament Hill was barrack hill so it was a barrack um so there's weaponry and, and all that kind of stuff there. there's ordinance lines. um yeah, yeah. And, and then right next to it is where they're burying people like those are two very different emotions that come from those two things you could say one directly leads to the other obviously mm-hmm. and so you have them next to each other but that's an interesting use of space thinking now what was bar- the cemetery is now largely um, sort of post-industrial space, right? Offices and, and towers and all that kind of stuff. And then Parliament Hill is, yeah, I know p- politicians work there, but really for most people it's a tourist site, right? It's a site to come see something. And those, it, it's it's such an interesting transformation of that space in not that much time. And to think about then the people who live here and who lived here then, who live here now, how they use that space is so radically different that it speaks to perhaps the contemporary society and how it's changed so much. But, you know, as an historian, I have the benefit of looking sort of writ large at, at the right. entire progress of, 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 of humanity and the, the basically uh, 217 years that Europeans have lived in this area. Um, and even before, in terms of uh, uh, indigenous peoples' relationships to the land, and mm-hmm. and the uh, essentially what is the major highway, which was the Ottawa River, and mm-hmm. that would allow uh, indigenous peoples, and before that, uh, other other settlers to to move about the land uh, efficiently from mm-hmm. uh, from areas Montreal and into the um, the Canadian West. So this relationship to land and a growing sensibility. In, in terms of our relationship to that land, uh, I, I believe is is a, a meaningful a meaningful journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at Jacques Hubert, who is the architect of modern Ottawa, architect of the Green Belt, uh, brought here by uh, Prime Minister King um, to redesign Ottawa as the Washington of the North, uh, <laughs> that that you see a lot of the the signatures of what we would see as trappings of the nineteen 40s and 50s that that sort of transform transformation period we call it the transformation period the immediate post-war period when Ottawa became 
the more so the nation's capital rather than the city that happened to just have <laughs> yeah. a Parliament Hill yeah. in it. Uh, so the complete uh, removal of the Breton Flats, which was Ottawa's industrial area, you had uh, Carling Breweries, for example, mm-hmm. was there. Uh, you had uh, all the rail switching yards. There was yep. a complete removal of rail systems from Ottawa in the 1950s, replaced with what is now the Queensway. Uh, a complete removal of rail from downtown, so the uh, what is now the the Congress Center, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, was the old Union Station across from Chateau Laurier yep. is now a government conference center. And yep. Actually, I believe the either the House of Commons or the Senate is uh, having their official chambers in that building. Right, I think it's the Senate. I think it's Senate, the Senate. Yeah, yeah, being renovated for that yeah. purpose. But Gribert had a different idea. Gribert wanted to actually have sort of a superhighway that would have been um, uh, Wellington Street, and there would have, was going to be an underpass that, you know, if you're going, um, you know, with your, in your fancy car, and you would sort of go into this underpass where the train, the Union Station was, and they were going to tear that down, and you would kind of go in underneath and, and progress up Sussex Drive as this, as this um, highway. That, that never came to pass, but right. uh, that was one of Gruber's. Uh, there's a beautiful book called uh, Transforming um, uh, Ottawa, written by uh, one of the planners who works here in the city, mm-hmm. and Transforming Ottawa, sort of documents and pictures. Uh, Ottawa pre-Gruber and Ottawa post-Gruber. It's really mm-hmm. quite a fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, fascinating read. Yeah. In, in seeing how that space is transformed, though, and, and, and as you mentioned, there's more bodies there that... We suspect so, yeah. That will probably be found at some point if they continue with the Queen Street projects. But, you know, I think about even where the War Memorial is and how that is a site uh, for a lot of people, for a site to come for some to grieve, for others to remember. It's, it's very, there's a funerary feel to the Remembrance Day ceremony, I think, mm-hmm. every year. Uh, and and it's, it's sort of, I don't know if it's ironic or just coincidental, that that's around the same space where there was this cemetery there as well. Does that, or this idea that now we're taking the the remains that were found and re-interring them in a way that, as you say, you you try to make it as authentic as possible and respectful to the time. But if there's people who are still there in that space, does the fact that they are in a place that is now a site of remembrance and a site of commemoration, does, does that somehow mitigate the changing of the space for you? Because like, to me, it, it almost seems like it's kind of fitting. Yeah, yeah in a way. The, the, uh, the area in the area where the War Memorial is, that's, uh, that area was not, that's a constructed area. Right. It, uh, the Russell Hotel was actually in that area and a very famous hotel in early Ottawa. A lot of very famous people. Uh, Oscar Wilde stayed at, oh, wow. uh, at the Russell cool. Hotel, and a lot of politicians would stay there uh, when they were. If they came from their ridings, then they would stay in the Russell Hotel or in rooming houses along Spark Street and so mm-hmm. on when they were not uh, in back in their ridings. So uh, it was a very hustle and bustle period once uh, Ottawa was selected uh, uh, as the capital. But uh, you know, at the time when the cemetery was still there, we we really didn't even have organized modern democratic government that you would expect right. today. I mean, uh, the 
town of Bytown was was not created until uh, 1850 after the the Baldwin Act of 1849 uh, and in fact Bytown was still Bytown until 1855 when it was named Ottawa and then not the nation's capital until uh, 1857 right. so so we're still well before that but but you can see on the horizon as the local citizens were trying to make Bytown more than what it was at the time <laughs> And you can sort of see their vision beginning to take take shape, and the vision of the people who shape the land and shape uh, our relationship to each other in terms of the cities and the communities that we build. It's that vision that shapes over time in response to that dynamic of mm-hmm. citizen engagement right. with with their with their land and with their uh, with their community and, mm-hmm. and the whole process of the growth of both of the government of Ottawa, both as a seat for um, uh, federal as well as local politics, um, that that emerges through that through that period, that mm-hmm. dynamic, that interplay between town and crown. Mm. Then, how do you present that to the public today? Right, when people read about the story and they see human remains, all this, and you know, how do you convey that to the general public in Ottawa? Because that would fall to sort of everyone involved in this story with the Canadian uh, Museum of History and, and the archaeologists involved, but certainly to you as well. And, and I'm sure you've gotten emails from people and, and e- the people who come in to use the archives here and say, how is it possible that we built over a cemetery? And, I mean, it's all well and good to talk about the changing of space and all that, but I think for a lot of people, they would just see this cemetery sacrosanct done. And sort of, it's a cut and dry issue. So, you know, the, we, to, to a certain extent, it falls to you to help explain how this happens. We we create persons of the past in our own peril. We are we are forever pushing our own sensibilities onto the past, and there are instances um, uh, where we find parts of the past intolerable. In some instances, we we have there has been a, a call to not to celebrate certain things, or you know, to take monuments down and this is happening in the United States now Um, and that's a very uh, natural growth from people's connection to the past right what's key though in that process and and the archives is really your your embodied where you know authenticity starts here Uh, we are where you will find the actual uh, authentic and reliable record Uh, i didn't say the true record Uh, i'll explain what i mean by that (laughs) that you as a contemporary person create records uh, to document your actions and your activities that speak to what you believe to be true at the time. Mm-hmm. And at a future point, we will, we will have a different set of, of beliefs about an historical event. And so the contemporary records help inform how we understand how people lived through mm-hmm. an historical event. They may not be true in a modern sense, in, in our modern yep. context, but at the time, this is, this is really how people how people believed, and it's it's critical to to make those records available so people understand how we acted and believed. I mean, the 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 whole modern funerary practice with funeral homes looking after the remains as a sacrosanct place and a, and a, and a forever place is a is a modern po- you know Victorian era. Mm-hmm. 
the relationship between people and the dead was very much a family affair in the in the, the early 19th century. So if you passed away, um, the family would would make your coffin. They would make the pall, which is the cloth that would cover uh, and be used to carry your coffin. Mm-hmm. The um, the wake, if one was held, was held in the home. You would be carried to the burial ground by members of your family and your close friends. Uh, it's a lot different than the than the industry that has grown up around death right. t- today. And so understanding this is very much part of of the mission of historians and the mission of, of uh, people, uh, archivists, and, and people who use historical records. So mm-hmm. uh, reporters, uh, bloggers, uh, amateur historians, genealogists, students, and anyone who's interested in the history of their neighborhood and how right. they came uh, they came to be. I believe as an historian that we cannot uh, become better who we are if we don't understand where we came from. Right. And and having having access to those records and having the comprehensive story that helps us say, well, we used to have a cemetery in the middle of the city, right. but now it's it's rows and rows of modern office buildings. Yeah. And this came about because of this and this and this and this and this. So that's why we don't we don't do that anymore. Right. Now all that being said, the city did have last week a event or an event yes. where they allowed people to come pay their respect to the remains that were found. Yes. Given the push towards authenticity that you talked about and the idea of the modern funeral practices and the Victorian and post-Victorian mm-hmm. ideas of that is the idea of a public event or the not it, public event makes it sound like it was a festival or something but the opportunity for the yeah. public to come pay respects does that not somehow go against the push to authenticity that you just talked about no I I, I don't think so um, I mean it was a public visitation in the sense of a traditional wake and really these are these are unknown uh, citizens of Ottawa and they belong to all of us. So they very much are our friends and neighbors and relatives as mm. much as, as they are uh, unknown souls from the past. And so in the traditional wake of the early early 19th century, this is an opportunity for people to visit. And the, the, the Museum of History for the last several years has been their home. Right. So really, yeah. we brought them. We we could have had the public visitation at at Beechwood Cemetery, we chose not to. And then the, there's an event upcoming, which will be, which will it be in the past once this gets posted, but yes. uh, upcoming on Sunday for the reinterment. Yeah. And that process is not open to the public. No. And how was that decision made? Uh, well, we, we found, I mean, there was, if you can imagine uh, in terms of the burial of uh, 52 caskets, that graveside is, is basically an open grave where all the caskets will be arrayed. And from a, a safety perspective, we, we didn't want to have uh, a lot of people from the public there. So we wanted mm-hmm. to provide an opportunity for the public to pay their respects, and that's why we chose to have the public visitation uh, separate from the uh, uh, the service. And there will be representatives of the the three uh, religious traditions uh, that will preside uh, over over the service, and there will be an opportunity of of 
civic representatives to stand in situ for uh, the family. And again, it's it's all about, I, I call it a dignity deficit, to to render to the souls of the past the dignity that has been denied them the last 170 years of their of their uh, of their death in terms of what happened on top of their remains? what happened on t- on top of their final resting place mm. and so we are correcting that that deficit personally for you as someone who as you said you're you're a historian you've been in the city uh, a long time you you started your career at uh, the national archives as they were known now you're here as the city archivist for Ottawa, obviously you have a connection to the city. It's apparent from just talking to you for the past hour, however long I've been here. I'm, I'm wondering if this experience going through this process, since the remains were found, since it came to you and your process in it, if it's changed your relationship with the city, and if, say, when you ride the LRT, when it opens, which we hope it all opens very soon, as, and as you're going underneath downtown in that tunnel, if, if you'll sort of reflect on this whole experience and, and if, if that does have a lasting effect for you in the city. Yeah, it's, I have the benefit as, a, as an archivist as well as, as, as constantly living in a meta world where mm. Uh, I, I'm not only aware of the, the passage of historic time and, and uh, significant historic events happening around me, um, but I have a, a, a professional detachment that I can engage right. that, that allows me to reflect on that meta level of how in the world am I going to document this in an effective and meaningful way so that future historians and future city planners and, and, and builders and visionaries and dreamers who dream of the city in a different way than we see it today how can I inform the, those discussions but history uh, history to me is something that is alive uh, mm-hmm. all around us in terms of our own uh, personal and professional lives but in our communities and our neighborhoods mm-hmm. and I think just seeing the um, the reaction we have several hundred people come to visitation on the weekend this past weekend, and I think that, that for me, that was very meaningful mm-hmm. to see and gratifying to see the response of, of people who live in Ottawa today, that they understood what the city was, was trying to do with that visitation and that right. they appreciated it. And it's that uh, connection to, to land, that connection to community, that connection to neighborhood that, that I am constantly reflecting on as I as we, we try and, and um, my staff here at the archives, when we try to develop our own planning mechanisms for how we document the city's history and how we document the interaction between citizens and their government mm-hmm. and how we capture the best evidence that will help us allow researchers of the present and future to investigate their past. Right. And yeah, that's sort of that meta part of it because in a hundred years, Somebody might say, hey, why are these 52 caskets here and, and all that? And then they'll come and look at the archives that you're leaving That's <laughs> as right. to why they're there. And we'll have all the records. Yeah. <laughs> as we said, the ceremony is October the 1st, which is the past. It's the future when we're talking right now. The past when you're listening to this. The public visitation was September 24th. And if you Google this story, you can find a bunch of news reports on it. And visit the city of Ottawa Archives website, and you can see some of the uh, files that are 
were used in terms of what's available here. And if you want to come check out some of the material, I know Paul, you and your staff are more than happy to help people out when they come on down. Because we were talking before, this is a new facility. And, and for those people who have done research in Ottawa, which I know is a lot of our audience, this facility is better equipped in a lot of ways than another facility in Ottawa, especially in things like turnaround time and, and responsiveness. So, and I know it's something that you're quite proud of and, and you're very happy to be in this, this building. So, Yeah, it's, uh, uh, we're very, um, I mean, we still pinch ourselves. Uh, we yeah. have our Ottawa's first, uh, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary last year as a, as a uh, institution, the archives. And uh, this is our first uh, uh, purpose-built facility designed with labs and with vaults and environmental controls and uh, emergency power systems and uh, a beautiful public reference room that uh, uh, that has uh, has developed to help serve uh, researchers. And I have a fantastic team here who's who is happy to uh, to assist uh, researchers in in understanding not only the records that they're looking at, but where the records came from, which mm. is a, a fundamental contribution that, that archivists make. And even even if I look at the growth and development of the archives as well as, uh, again, talking about meta, meta growth, we, mm. we designed this facility in 2007. And uh, at the time, we had laid out uh, 10 uh, computer workstations with personal uh, public use computers that we mm -hmm. would have available for people to look at our databases. And then uh, in 2010, uh, Steve Jobs invented the iPad. <laughs> and uh, so now we have uh, two public use computers and the, uh, uh, the 10 uh, computer workstations have been replaced by uh, couches and chairs and an opportunity for uh, people to use the city archives not only as a research facility but as a, a place of, of reflection. We have some display cases so mm -hmm. they can not only reflect but also experience firsthand some of the, the treasures and artifacts that we have in the collection that we have on display. Yeah, and it seems yeah. like the building is sort of designed almost for that purpose. Like walking around, I, and I noticed your window here and I noticed on the stairs as well, a lot of the glassware or the, the, the glass window stuff has text on it. Yes, um, and it looks sort of on your window here, handwritten text that would you would see in an archival document. So it's, you know, it's a whole experience of that's clearly that you're stepping into a place that is representative of the past or as or, or as a trove of information. Yeah, the architects call this physicality of space. Right. So the space itself is designed to represent what it holds. Right. And uh, I mean, you'll, you'll notice I have no leather uh, patches on my tweed jacket. <laughs> I've got a, I'm wearing an actual suit as opposed to a, a, an old style, uh, you know, proper soil jacket. We're not meeting in a, in a dusty basement right. yeah. uh, surrounded by red rod and dust. Um, we're in a beautiful modern yeah. uh, space with lots of glass and light. And this was um, very, very important to, to the design team in designing this space that we fundamentally believe that the archives in the true spirit of public archives belongs to the people of Ottawa and, and to Canadians uh, writ large and so the space is designed to be a welcoming accommodating space where people can come and interact directly with their history and talk to specialists who can help them understand mm -hmm. it uh, and the space is designed to create that welcoming engaging space that that isn't uh, 
isn't the, uh, the, the bastion of, of, of pure academic research where the barrier is a PhD. If you don't have one, you can't see it. <laughs> we, we're, we're, right. we're turning that old school notion of what archives are on its mm -hmm. head. And um, you know, my youngest researcher is a, is a 12 year old who comes here with her, with her mother. Uh, she's, in, uh, she's homeschooled. Uh, so she does all her assignments here at the archives. Oh, cool! Uh, nice. And uh, some of my researchers are, are my oldest researchers are in their seventies and eighties, and I've got everybody from twelve to ninety right. coming here to the archives to interact with the, the documents and the staff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and yeah, wonderful facility. And if you're coming to Ottawa, it's out in Nepean. It's right. I'd say s south of uh, Algonquin College. Yes, but two blocks um, south. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's not, you know, I joke, I have a friend who lives just actually up the street um, from here, and I joke that he lives in the middle of nowhere, but of course it's not true. It's really easy to get out here uh, on the bus, or it's, I got here from downtown, even on a bad traffic day in 15 minutes. It's really uh, it's and, a And LRT, uh, LRT by the end of phase two LRT. Yeah, you're, it would be out here, have yeah. Service just right over here. And yeah. in fact, the, the grass that's area just out uh, in front of the building mm -hmm. is actually a reserved transit um, oh, land. Oh, perfect. So, so uh, you know, grade separated transit yeah. way was, was originally planned for this building. So if you, you know, go out and stand at the corner of Tallwood and Woodruff and you look straight up, you can see this reserved space goes all the way uh, to the college where Baseline Station is. Right. And the whole space goes all the way down here to Norris. Uh, it's a great separated uh, right. rapid yeah. uh, transit uh, system, so we're very, we're very connected, and we are geographically centered. We're not in downtown, admittedly, right. but we're the geographical center of Ottawa. And so right, uh, that's because uh, the city decided to take over, you know, all the way to Canada and down near Renfrew. Yeah, well, we were <laughs> actually. Uh, I mean, I mean, it was a. I, I think it, it was an amalgamation more than yeah. it was. A, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. In the old days, we used to call them annexations, uh, which was when we, when we literally took over. But in this yeah. particular instance, it was a, it was a coming together of, of equal partners yes. uh, in the process. Yeah. So if you're yeah. in Ottawa, come on to the geographic center of the city and visit Paul and, and his staff here at the City Archives. So that is Paul Henry, the City Archivist for Ottawa. Thank you very much for the time this morning. It's been a pleasure. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.